We are in Ecclesiastes, which is a book about a man who has everything. So he's got money, he's got power, he's the king, he has a kingdom, there's peace in his kingdom, he has pleasure, it would go PG-13 in a hurry, he's got women, more than you and I could ever count, he's got it all. Whatever you think someone should have, he's got more of it. And then he does this, he decides in this book, it's chapter two, verse three, that he was gonna figure out what the good life looks like. So he becomes an experimenter or a quester. And he starts to look at what's the good life? Now, if I was to ask you that, what's the good life? What would you write down? They did a survey of teens and they essentially asked him that question. And the number one response today of teens is, to be famous. Doesn't matter what you're famous for. I just want to have 50 million subscribers on my YouTube channel. That's all I care. Doesn't matter it's because I'm part of the fail army or I'm a sinner. I don't care how I get famous. I just want to be famous. How about you? Is it finally moving from Merlin to Maui? Like, ah, oh, that'll be it. That'll be the day. Is it having kids or having your kids graduate or having your kids graduate and get out of your home? Is that the good life? Is it like that old commercial? A couple guys sitting around a fire drinking cheap beer and they say, it doesn't get any better than this. If that's true and you see me, run me over, okay? Because it better be better than that. Is it winning? Like, it doesn't matter what you're doing, that the good life is if you win, if you're Tom Brady, just win. Is that the good life, right? What is it? Is it asceticism? Like actually living simply, is it, have you heard of Marie Kondo? Who's heard of her? She's unbelievable, isn't she? Right? I, I read an article on thrift stores. They're overwhelmed right now. They have so much stuff, they don't know what to do because Marie Kondi, her thing is like, just get rid of all the junk. But you do it like this. You take your junk and you say, I love you, junk. Thank you. And then get rid of it, <laughs> right? Google her, she's fascinating. Is that, is it, is it minimalist, ascetic kind of life, living with less? Is that the good life, right? So let's say you have your definition of the good life. How do you actually know that's the good life? Have you tried everything else? Can you go to RCC and be like, hey, I wanna take a course on the good life. I haven't seen that in college yet. So how would you even know if you had discovered the good life? Okay, enter in Solomon. Solomon has had the ability to experiment and to quest and to look now over the course of five chapters, maybe let's say 30 years of his life to try and experiment and look and look and look and look. And he goes big, okay? I'll just give you one example. He goes through a partying stage where it's parties. And someone took the time to look at all the food and all the wine that came into Solomon's palace every day to see how many people that would serve. And they came up with a number, 15,000 people conservatively, maybe 30,000 people. So every night when Solomon parties, he's got 15, 20,000 people at his house. 
So your New Year's Eve soiree with your 30 buddies, preschool, okay? It's big. That's the point. Solomon can do this and experiment at a level that you and I could never do it. So now here's what Solomon does. He's been doing this for a long time. And finally he does this. He takes off his existential crazy hat and he puts on his old Proverbs hat. And he sits and says, here's what I think the good life is. So look at this, chapter five, verse 18. Here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 5, 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. It was what I want to do in chapter two, verse three, find out what the good life was. Now I've lived a bunch of life, done a lot of things, kind of experimented around, and now I'm looking back on it. He'll do this a number of times. I'm looking back and here's what I think. Proverbs hat, here's the good life. To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So Solomon now gives us a break from all the existential angst and he says, Here's the good life. And there are six things in here. This is a list message. If you like list messages, you'll like this one. And maybe there's something in here in this list that you say, actually, I'm not doing that. And maybe Solomon has a point here. And maybe I need to start incorporating that into my life if I want to live the good life, okay? So let's do this list. Number one, he says this. He, out of the gate, you want a good life? Number one, to eat and to drink. Number one, you want a good life? Feast. I think it is biblical and godly to eat great food. I think it is biblical and godly to feast. Read the New Testament. Jesus, what is he always doing? Right? But he does it like this. He invites himself over to other people's houses for dinner because he's homeless right? Hey, bro, I'm coming over to your house tonight for dinner, right? He's always doing that, right? I know one guy in the back is like, what's wrong with that, man? Okay, that's not normal. Please don't do that, right? It's not normal. Don't do that to him. So Jesus is constantly eating meals. He's constantly feasting with people, right? They accused him of that. That should give us a subtle hint to the good life. Like the good life is feast, have good food with people that you love. Feast. What's sad is many of the meals we eat, we eat them in our cars. They were designed by a clown and they were cooked by a 16 year old. And you're not feasting. I think it's actually satanic. <laughs> Taking the good gifts of God and like ruining them, right? You want real spiritual warfare? Feast on good food with God's people. Hang out with them, ask them questions, tell stories, laugh. Pray for one another. Talk about kingdom stuff. Man, that's, to me, great spiritual warfare. When's the last crew you feasted with? When's the last new person that you said, hey, I wanna get to know you, come over to my house for dinner? 
Christians should have this as a habit, a spiritual discipline. We're feasting, we're gonna feast. It's awesome. So my daughter's a couple nights ago, it was Thursday night, they had Friday off from school. So they invited some friends over to eat. We're like, hey, that's fine. But they didn't invite them over until nine o'clock at night, right? So they start like making sushi at nine o'clock at night and they're laughing and giggling and clanking and banging till like 12.30 at night. I'm like, ah. So in the morning, I got up to ask them how it was and I made sure and do it at 5.30 a.m. How was it last night? (laughs) Yeah, that's how I felt, okay. (laughs) I didn't actually do that to him. I should have. I said, how, what was it? She, they said, it was so much fun. No agenda, no like, we got to have big plans, no activity, just make some food, sit around, laugh, enjoy, feast. We need to do that. Number one, good life, feast. Simple, huh? Number two, to find enjoyment, verse 18, in all the toil which one toils, under the sun. Number two, work. But it's a certain kind of work. So Wednesday night, we looked at chapter three, verse 24, and it's very similar to this verse. And the Hebrew is actually this. It is make your soul see the good in your job. That's actually what it's saying. It's a perspective thing. So there's two kind of options when it comes to work. Option number one, find a job you love. That's a great option. I had a professor who said this, a calling is something you love to do where it meets the world's need. Where those two meet is your calling. But just because you love to do something doesn't mean you're gonna make money at it. Right? You love curling, you know, that Olympic sport, probably better get a job other than that. You love bowling, get a job. You love basketball and you're four foot eight, get a job, right? So just, it's not always gonna be that way. So Psalm is really honest when he talks about work in Ecclesiastes. He says this, that you have to actually make your soul see the good in your job, right? Not everybody is going to have their dream job. I'll do a survey here. Hopefully your employer is not here. Raise your hand if you're doing your dream job. Let the record show. Everyone on staff at Edgewater raised their hand. (laughs) Right, that's not all of us. There's quite a few that says, well, you know, it's a job. So on Wednesday, when we talked about this, this making your soul see the good in your job, it's like this. In Romans 8, verses five through eight, it says this, that if we walk in the spirit, we'll keep our mind on the values of the spirit. That Romans 8 is saying this, there's not like spiritual things. Like we think there are only spiritual activities, like praying, fasting, giving. Like those are spiritual activities. Are those spiritual activities? Not necessarily. Read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about those. He says this, don't pray like the hypocrites who love to pray long, long, long prayers. You know people like that? Matt, you should not talk there. (laughs) They just pray on and on and on. You're like, oh, come on already. Because they want to be heard. Don't pray like that. 
Instead, go into your closet where no one sees you and pray in there. Give, right? Don't give like the hypocrites who want everybody to know, look how generous I am, look how much I'm giving here. He says, don't let your left hand know what your right, right hand is doing, right? Or fasting, don't fast like them. They suck in their cheeks. They go around holding their bellies like, oh, I'm so hungry. Why are you so hungry? Because I'm fasting for world peace. You know, I'm just, it's just my duty, right? Don't do that. So what Jesus says is there's not spiritual activities. There's spiritual values. And I believe this. I believe work can be the most spiritual thing a person does. That if you're minding the values of God, if you're saying, hey, this might not be my dream job, but you know what? God gave it to me. I'm able to provide for my family. I'm able to go here and be salt and light in this place. I'm able to go there and use the gifts that God has given to me. May not be my dream job, but I'm gonna put my values, I'm gonna make my soul see the good in this job. I'm gonna do it, Colossians 3:17, heartily as if I was working for Jesus. I'm gonna look at my boss like he's Jesus Christ. My boss is not Jesus Christ. In fact, he's the antichrist, I'm pretty sure of it. Even more important to work in such a way that you are demonstrating a different kind of authority in your life, right? That's what he's saying right here. You work in such a way that you force your soul to see the good in what you're doing, even if it's not your dream job, right? And here's the thing. I think it's very easy to think there's something else that's better. So Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs, you ever seen him? He does this TED talk on work. You should watch it. It's very, very interesting. Two things in it that stood out to me. Number one, he said this, the worst advice you can give somebody is do what you're passionate about, right? How many have given that advice to people? Find something you're passionate about and do it. No, he says, that's the worst advice. And the second thing he says that I love is this. He said, he found the people that were happiest came home from work smelly. They did dirty jobs. They sweat, they toiled. He goes, they had more symmetry in their life. We can have this idea that if I was just in the corner office, if I was just over there, I'd be happy. Mike Rowe would say, uh-uh. In fact, if you're out digging a ditch, you're happier because you don't know the pressures that come from that corner job. When you're actually happier, you have better symmetry. That's part of just making your soul see the good in the job that you have. There's this apocryphal story told about building the Westminster Abbey. It's this big stone cathedral where they asked three masons about what they were doing. The first mason said, I'm cutting stone. The second mason said, I'm building and making a living. The third mason said, I'm making a beautiful cathedral for the glory of God and the joy of his people. Which one enjoyed that work better, right? It's perspective, so much is perspective. And Solomon is saying, if you want the good life, live in such a way that you force yourself, you tell yourself, you talk to your soul about the good in the job that you're doing right now. That's the good life. Feast, work, number three. Twice it says in this little text, this is your lot. This is your lot. And what Solomon is saying, if you look at the wider breadth of Ecclesiastes, I won't do that. He's saying this, know yourself. If you want the good life, you have to know yourself. That there's a certain lot that each of us is given. 
And there are things that I will never change in my life. There are things that you will never change in your life. If you're tall, you're never gonna be short. If you're short, you're probably never gonna be tall, right? If you're skinny, you're just gonna stay skinny. I'm skinny, I'm never gonna get big. If you're thick, you're probably not gonna stop that bone structure in you, right? If you're funny, you're gonna be funny. If you're not funny, don't try to be a comedian. So what he's saying is this, listen, there are things that you can control and there are things that you cannot control. And the good life figures that out. And it can be hard. Growing up, I had one dream. If my mom was alive, you could ask her. In heaven, ask her. I had one dream to be an NFL quarterback like Joe Montana. He was my hero. I had his posters pasted up in my room. I love Joe Montana. That's all I wanted. And I went to this youth group at Four Square Church right here in Grants Pass. And there was a well-meaning youth pastor. Um, I don't think he meant to be wrong, but he was wrong. Because he said this. He said, if you memorize scripture, God will give you whatever you want. I was like, really? How much do I need to memorize? Man, tell me how much. Because I want to be an NFL quarterback. Well, it did not matter if I memorized the book of Leviticus. When I went out for football in my eighth grade year, I was still four foot 10 and 80 pounds. And so I get last in line. They start, they're handing out gear. They handed me this helmet. This helmet was giant. It must've been for the rock or something because I mean, just huge. So I've got this giant helmet on my head. I'm a transfer student in. Coach doesn't know me from anyone. Sets me and goes, hey, run a 10 yard pattern, turn around and catch the ball. So I go running out 10 yards. I turn, the helmet does not turn. I just look back, ball hits me in the head, bounces off, right? He just said this, hey, go stand over there. I stood with the guy with the broken arm for the rest of practice, like, right? Now I'm not gonna change that. So there's a certain level in life where you have to come to, these are the things that I can control and these are the things that I cannot control. And I'm gonna learn to be okay with that. I'm gonna learn to be okay, right? So marriage advice I give, probably at some point with every person that comes in. So they'll come in and if it's the husband, he'll start talking, you know, maybe I kind of did some things wrong, but this is what my wife does. She does this and this and this and this and this. And I'll listen for a while, but eventually I'll just say, time out. Bro, you're never gonna control your wife. You can't control her. What you can control is how you respond to her. Are you responding with Galatians 5.22 stuff? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, temperance. Are you praying for her? Are you becoming the husband that she needs? That's what you can control. And I'd love to talk to your wife because I'll tell her the same thing. She'll come in and she'll be like, he does this and this and this and this and this and this. And I'll say to her, hey, time out. You can't control him. All you can control is how you respond to her. The good life comes when you and I take some time and we evaluate ourselves and we learn like, these are the things that I can control and these are the things that I cannot control and the things that I can control, I'm gonna improve on and pray that God helps me and pray that God moves me forward and the things that I cannot control, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna give them to God who does control them and say, okay, God, I know I can't control her. I can't control this. I can't control the economy. No problem. I'm gonna trust that to you. And the things that I can control, my lot, I'm gonna control those things. And then trusting this about yourself. Psalm 139, that you are fearfully 
and wonderfully made. That God knew exactly what he was doing when he made you. And that with just as you're made, Ephesians 2.10 says, that God has good works that he has planned in advance for you to walk in. And you say, okay, God, I want to bloom where you've planted me. I wanna take the gifts and the talents that you've given to me and use them well. So I can't sing, I'm not gonna be in front singing, no problem. What do I have? How can I use that gift for your kingdom and for your glory? I'm gonna stop being envious of other people's lives and live the life that God has designed for me. That's the good life. You feast, you work, you know yourself. Fourthly, reading on, verse 19, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them to accept his lot. Make money, make money. That might seem weird for a pastor to be saying, I don't think it is at all. If you read the Bible, the heroes of the faith were wealthy. Abraham, just read his story. It says he was wealthier than anybody else around. Isaac, same. Jacob dominated business. Job, wealthiest dude. David, Solomon, just go down the list. These guys were the Phil Knights, the Steve Jobs, the Bill Gates of their day. They made money. It's no problem making money. John Wesley put it like this, and I think this is wisdom. He said this, make as much money as you can, save as much money as you can, and give away as much money as you can. I think that's wisdom on money. And if you, God is giving you power to make money, do it. Do it, no doubt. Paul would say this, Philippians 4.12. He said, man, I've had lots of money, and that was awesome. And I've also been broke and I was content. See, he had money, but money never had him. And if he had money, great, he enjoyed it, used it, no doubt. And if he didn't have money, no problem. Make money. There are a lot of things that money can't buy, but guess what? Without money, you got a lot more problems. That's what happens. Make money. The Bible has no problem with that. The good life, make money, right? Feast, you can throw a lot more feasts if you've got money. Feast, work, make your soul enjoy the work that you're doing. Know yourself, totally. Make money if you can. Fifthly, and you gotta tease this one out. Twice it says this in this chapter or in this little text. The life God has given to him, end of verse 18 or verse 19, this is the gift of God. In Ecclesiastes, if you read it, and I recommend it, Solomon goes existential, but every once in a while he pops his head up and he'll say this when he remembers God. Life is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. Life is a gift from God. Now, if somebody gives something to you, what do you say in return? Thank you. Psalm is saying, be thankful. And he says it over and over. Chapter two, verse 24, chapter three, verse 13, chapter nine, verses seven through 10. Be thankful for the gift of life. If you want a good life, a key is gratefulness. We make this mistake. We think unhappy people are ungrateful, right? You're unhappy because you're unhappy, then you become ungrateful. The opposite is actually what happens. Ungrateful people become unhappy people. Science is finding this out. 
I just read this great study done by a couple of professors, um, professor from University of California, Dr. Emmons, and a professor at University of Miami, Dr. McLaughlin. And here's what they found. They took a group of people, they divided them into two. Group one, every morning they were told, take this journal, write down in the morning things you're thankful for. That's all you have to do. Just list out thankful, 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 thankful. That's it. The other group of people, they said this, every morning when you get up, write down all the things in this journal that irritate you. Your neighbor, your kids, your house, your job, your car, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your, well, just make your list. Just rant and rage about what irritates you. And they watched these two groups of people. Can you imagine what happens with them? Here's what they found. A group that was grateful and thankful, more successful. They exercised more often. They um, had radically fewer visits to the doctor. Like on every metric you can measure, they did well. This other group though, poorer and poorer, worse and worse. They actually went downhill from what they were. Here's why. There's this thing that's called positive interpretive bias. Has anyone ever heard of that? Your positive interpretive bias? Here's what it means. It means this, life happens and most of life is not good or bad, but when life happens, the way that you interpret it matters greatly to your happiness. So the people that have positive interpretive bias, so they've been thankful, whatever it is, when something happens to them, the way that they look at it is actually, oh, it's good. So I'll give you an example. Let's say one person from each of these crew, the thankful people, the irritated people. They both go to a class, they take a test and they flunk it. The person that has a positive interpretive bias they end up interpreting that flunking like this. Oh no, I did poorly. I need to study. I need to get in a group. I need a tutor. And because of that, they actually work themselves out of that hole and get better. The other side though, has what's called a negative interpretive bias. So they flunk the test and guess how they see that? I'm a loser. I'm terrible. I'll never graduate. It's horrible. And they actually go lower and lower and lower. So what they found was this. If you just be thankful, you get better and better and better. The Bible has been saying that for a long, long time. Second Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says this, be thankful in everything, right? Do the opposite of this person over here. Be a guy that writes down a list because what happens is all of a sudden you begin to interpret things much better, positively, better. You grow out of it. It's brilliant, right? If you're not thankful, can I give you a test? You know what I should do? I should divide the church into two. You guys are the irritation crew and you're the thankful crew. No, I don't need to do that. People be moving seats like, I am not doing that. We don't know the results of it. What if this next month, the whole month of February, what if every morning you decided, in the morning I'm gonna wake up I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna write out all the things that I'm thankful for and see if February isn't a great month simply because you're doing what the Bible says and you're being thankful. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you get that positive interpretive bias. Psalm would say, be thankful. It'll lead to the good life. And lastly, but maybe not, 
Maybe the biggest one, I would say. Look at verse 20. It's an underliner. To me, it's one you can have a cup of tea in the morning and just think through. Listen to what it says. For he will not much remember the days of his life. So there's a tendency to overthink our past, right? Just overthink. You're not going to remember the days of your life. Why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I love that verse. Here's what this is saying. Get over yourself. You want a good life? Get over yourself, right? Quit remembering the days of your life, how you failed, how you failed somebody else, how they failed you, how you were a moron, whatever it is. Get over that. Quit remembering all that junk in your past. I'll tell you, I'm so glad that there were no smartphones when I was growing up, right? All the videos of fails or whatever, I would do, man, that'd fill a library. Get over your past. Too many Christians are professional archaeologists. They go every morning, they dig up their past, they pull it out, they inspect it, they brood over it, they get mad at it, irritated by it. You know what happens to archaeologists? They get all dirty. That's what happens to people that are constantly digging up their past, like an archaeologist. They're just always dirty and just, ah, oh, are you kidding? Stop it. Quit digging up your past. Stop that junk. Quit going over your failures. Quit that occupation. Here's what I think. And I actually just started thinking about that this morning. There's a quote from an author I like, and he says this. He says, grace will never prevail until you get over the notion that someone somewhere is keeping score. Grace is never gonna prevail in your life, in my life, until I get over this notion that there's a scorecard somewhere. And you can be the keeper of the scorecard. You can be like, well, okay, this one weighs out, that one. Okay, grace is never gonna have any power in your life. God doesn't do that. That's not grace, right? That's merit. Grace is never gonna prevail in your life until you get over the notion that someone somewhere is keeping score. So here's what I think. I think you guys got up this morning and you got dressed and you came here and you got your kids ready and you did all that. You came because you knew, I wanna be different. I wanna be better. I wanna follow Jesus better. I wanna be reminded of who I am. You came and, and, and you're here, good, man, that's awesome. That's why we come, that's why we get here because we have this desire to be something and to be a better parent and a better spouse and a better worker and to have a good life, right? We want that on one side. But my guess is this, there's a bunch of us that came with this other side with us, failure. Like this week, you lost your temper with your kids. Like this week, you weren't the spouse that you wanted to be. This week, the New Year's resolutions that you had, man, you're already failing at them. And you're saying, another year of this? Really? Really? Am I gonna never change? That there's some that are in bondage to things that you wish that you could get free of that bondage. So you've got this, this dichotomy in you, this war in you between, man, I really want to be these things, but 
<sighs> this is what I am. And I'm in bondage. I can't seem to break it. And I want to be a great parent and a great husband, and a great worker, a great spouse, a great wife, but I feel like failure. And I come to church and I want this breakthrough. I want just to be touched and to change. Can you feel that? Man, I feel that. So I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes for a second. Everybody close their eyes. If you feel that weight, that weight of like desire to be this high mark, this, this yes, but then just at the same moment, you also feel this, this failure, this, ugh, this, I need a breakthrough. I need to be somebody different. If you feel that weight, if you feel like, yeah, you know what, today I would love to have God touch my heart in such a way that'd be radically changed. If you feel that, I want you to raise your hand. Every person that just raise it up, keep your hand up. If you feel that, that tension, put your hand up. If you feel the tension of, yes, I wanna be this, but I'm not it, and oh, I love a breakthrough, raise your hand up. Get it up. Okay, I want you to open your eyes now and look around. Keep your hands up. How many of that is us? Man, that's me. Okay, you can put your hands down. Here's why I do that. I think that's the Christian walk. I think the Christian walk is that tension right there, right? But we're told by the enemy, you're a failure, you know, keep concentrating on this, keep looking at how bad you are. That's what happens to us. And we do that very often by actually looking at other people like, oh, that dude's got it down, man. If I could only be like him, like he reads the Hebrew and he reads the Greek. Oh, I read the message Bible because I like those kind of words. They're simple, right? So then you're just like, I'm such a failure. He's got it and I'm a bum. You know what I think the truth is? You're both bums. Honestly right? Or, or women, you do it all the time. She's such a great parent. She's got it all together. She always comes. Man, her kids are beautiful. They're like sitting straight up. They say, yes, ma'am. I'm like, wow, she's killing it. I'm a terrible mom. You know what I think? You're both terrible moms. Matt, you're so encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's the Christian walk. We have these great desires to be something, but we also know this other side to us. And what we actually need to do is forget yesterday. That's what we gotta be doing. Because when we're archeologists, we just, man, we dig ourselves into a pit every single morning and we can't get out of it. Paul says this, it's Philippians 3.14. He says, this one thing I do, I forget those things that are behind me and I reach forward to the high mark that God has on my life. To me, that's a daily discipline. Because if not, you start believing the lies of the enemy and you just become an archaeologist and you just spiral down and down and down. Instead of, the Bible says this, I love this. Instead of being occupied with joy, you're dirty and in a pit. The Christian life is both of those things. We're all bums. We're all terrible. We're all broken. But guess what? I was an adopted bum. I'm a loved moron. I'm a brought into the heavenly family idiot. That's what I am. And I forget those things that lay behind and I reach forward to the high mark that God has on my life. And when I do that, guess what happens to me? I get a new occupation. Instead of an occupation of an archeologist, I get the occupation of joy. It just brings joy to my heart. I can feel joy right now. Just repeating that to you, I feel joy in my heart. 
Are you kidding me? God loves me? The bum that I know that I am? The idiot that I have been? He loves me? Oh, wow. Joy. That's the Christian walk. And we come, yes, to move forward. And we come, yes, absolutely. And you will move forward. Right? The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. Baby steps forward. Baby step, baby step, baby step. Forgetting the junk behind you and being occupied with his joy. That is the Christian walk. And the reason why we come and we drink and we eat is to remind ourselves, yes, you're an idiot, but you're loved. Yes, you're a moron, but you've been adopted and God will never let go of you because he loves you that much. That's why we eat and drink of this. It heals us from obstacles to our own joy. It heals us from being archeologists. It heals us. So we come and we eat and we drink of that. And so Jesus this day, I pray for us because the enemy is so good with his lies. He has an ability to pinpoint where we're most vulnerable as a husband or as a wife, as a parent, as a daughter, as a son, as a worker, as a person, to pinpoint our wound and just cause us to dig in and feel like failures and idiots. Help us to not remember those days. Help us to eat and drink and to have a new occupation, which is your joy. That we're joyful because we've been adopted by you. That we're joyful that you would die for us and shed your love abroad for us. That we're joyful that you've given us a kingdom that cannot be taken from us, that we're joyful, that those things were forgiven, that though our sins were like scarlet, we've been made white as snow and we're occupied by joy now. Give us the breastplate of righteousness, I pray, that protects our hearts and causes us to forget yesterday and to reach forward to the high mark you have on us today. Yes, may we feast and yes, may we work hard and yes, may we know who we are. And yes, may we make money and yes, may we be thankful, but most importantly, may we forget those things that lie behind and reach forward to the high mark you have on us this day not allowing the enemy to rip off today because of how bad we were yesterday. May we enjoy your grace because we've gotten over the notion that there's a scorecard somewhere. That scorecard has been nailed to the cross and your grace has erased it. And you call us beautiful and perfect. Fill us with your joy. May we eat and drink of that today, I pray. And may we, may we go from here knowing we're saved, sanctified, kids of the King. And I pray this in your name, amen.